G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Research Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. And we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast. We don't ask for much in return, but we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast, Raycast, and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, but we really appreciate a moment of your time to uh, to go and leave us a review. So joining Brian and myself in our virtual studio, we're going to uh, talk to Dr. Dan O'Neill, who is one of our senior lecturers in companion animal epidemiology here at the RBC. So thank you very much, Dan, for, for joining us. Thank you, Dominic. It's a real pleasure to be here. So, so Dan, I think we, we, we spoke actually when the, when the mics were, were closed a bit before about um, the, the research path that you've, you've followed. And, and obviously, we don't have a, um, a, a video feed at the, at the moment for this podcast, but you're, you're mature in years. You're, you're not a, 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 um, a whippersnapper, if that's, if that's appropriate. And you, you come to research um, a little, little later in, in your career. So could you maybe tell... Tell the sort of the, the way you went into research and how that um, how that came to light, how that came to be. Thank you, Dominic, for that very generous approach to my age. And you're right; I may not be a whippersnapper, but I'm still snapping the whip when it comes to collecting data on primary care veterinary evidence. Um, good question about the history. I guess we're all defined by the paths we've taken in life and the choices we've made. Um, my path in life was in primary care practice for. Uh, 20 years, 22 years, in fact, um, because that was where I felt I could make the most benefit for animal welfare, working at the coal face with animals one by one by one. Um, and then as the years went by, two kind of epiphanies happened. Um, one was the realization that there, there was a different opportunity for veterinary surgeons, and that was the opportunity to work uh, to benefit animal welfare at a population level. Um, whereby we might be able to make marginal gains for animals. But if that was multiplied across thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of dogs or cats across the UK, that could be really substantial. And the second epiphany was that, especially as the years went by, and I became more and more critical of the evidence that I was applying in primary care practice, I realized actually it was very poor, very weak. There were just so many gaps on common questions that we needed to answer, um, such as the age we neuter animals at, or even whether we should neuter them, or what are the downsides of neutering them, obesity, what are the risk factors, um, comparing health between breeds. So owners would regularly ask me questions like, which dog should I get? And I would give my opinion, quite honestly. But then if I question that opinion, there is actually very little basis behind it of evidence. It was just my belief or my assumption. Um, so, so that's kind of the, risk, the, the history, the path that I took. It was all about getting to a point when I questioned what I was doing in practice. And um, I asked myself, was there a better way for primary care practitioners to be able to deliver the best possible care? Um, and that led me away from first opinion practice and into the Royal Veterinary College. Do you, do you think that was a, a big step? So you, I, I suppose that you, you 20, 22 years in, in practice is quite a, um, a chunk of time. And, and what what was the, I suppose, I've heard people say that they never regret like taking on a, a new job. But um, but obviously, you're, you're, I mentioned you're quite not entrenched, but you're, you're, you're quite solid in your in your career happy with with what you're doing so was it was it quite a, a, a massive transition or did, was it a gradual process or did you actually just um apply to do some research and and follow that um 
two, actually all of the above, um, as with virtually everything in life, um, decisions, big decisions tend to be complex and we often simplify them. And we could simplify this one down to a, a single moment in time, which was about 7.30 in the middle of August in 2008, when a program called Pedigree Dogs Exposed was aired on the television. Um, and this highlighted huge issues with the health of pedigree breeds. Um, and I sat and watched this with my, my daughter, a very young daughter at the time. Um, and a couple of things happened. Number one, the, the penny just really dropped that actually we know virtually nothing about the health of these breeds at a population level. Most of the research was focusing on very rare disorders that might be of interest in their own right from a pathology point of view, but actually at a population point of view were, were very rare and probably not that important. Um, and the second realization was that uh, I was actually embarrassed on behalf of the veterinary profession that we weren't stepping up and doing more to improve our basic knowledge um, base on the broad and common issues that affect dogs. Um, so, so that's like a, a, a single turning point moment when you just decide, right, that's it. Um, things have to change and um, I'm going to try and do something about changing that. Um, a, a, a broader answer is that <laughs> this is the, the quantitative scientist in me that was probably already there and I didn't realize it, was that um, from the time that I had graduated to a time of retirement, although we might not now all retire later, um, I had subdivided my career into two halves and um, 22 years was actually the halfway point um, from a 44-year gap from graduating to retiring at 65. So um, numerically, uh, I had reached a point when I had decided the next career would start anyway. Um, it was just exactly what that next career was. That was what the epiphany um, forced me down that line. So very good question. Though. And and did you your 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 peers your um, contemporaries in the in the veterinary field did they encourage you to search this path or did they did they question why are you why are you changing what you what you're doing? <laughs> That's a really good question as well. So so at the at that time I I had my own practice in Kent uh, a two vet small animal practice I'd been there for twelve years it was a very nice life it's a very successful practice we had clients you know coming out the cracks of the place um lovely team and a very nice life and basically this was a life you could live for the next 22 years and be very happy with it um we have a every year patrick's weekend we have a, a get together of um dublin graduates in ireland uh, at various different venues um I can still remember that year when uh, I went to that and told the other um, lads there my plan and they just all said I was nuts. So that's just crazy. That's just a stupid decision because you're walking away from something that is, is very, very good and you're walking into an abyss, an unknown. Um, uh, oddly, I looked at it the other way around and um, it was the walking into the abyss that was the fun bit, the challenge, that was the interesting bit. Um, so for me, it, it was a no-brainer to do this. But actually, externally, from a, a rationally logical, cold, grey light of day perspective, um, it probably came across as being a bit of a nuts decision. Um, and I have to say, looking back, I don't regret it one bit. It was totally the right decision. Uh, not everybody's cup of tea. Um, but if there are a 
listener out there um, that is thinking about making a leap, um, I would suggest to go for it. Um, Carl, Carl Popper, who is a, a very famous philosopher, um, in the intro to his um, major work, his um, big book, um, he has an inscription that says, jump and the net will appear. So in other words, just go for it. Um, things always work out in life if you work hard enough. And and then that is absolutely fascinating. And then did you um so, so where did you start your your research journey? Then or how did you did you you obviously had these <clears throat> problems in your mind from from clinical practice that you wanted to to help answer? And but how did you go about looking for a place that can help you work on those um, work on those answers? So the so the first um part of that answer is about upskilling. Um, so as a clinician, um, we're hugely skilled. Now I have to say, um, and I'm a, originally a primary care practitioner, that's what I was. Um, and in my mind, that's what I still am. Um, but externally, there is often a view that that's that's somebody who has stopped learning, you know, and it's people who have gone on and done certificates and that and diplomas and that that are the real experts. I, I kind of see it the other way around. I see the primary care practitioners as the real experts and the, the persons with the diploma and certificates who um, have just decided to carve out one chunk to become really good at. So I see the primary care practitioners as being really highly skilled at what they do, which is primary veterinary care which is hugely complex, way more complex than the referral world um, because we're dealing with all the murkiness of clients and their wishes and finances and the availability of services within our clinics and the, the broad variety of species and breeds and then disorders that we deal with. Um, however, when you then decide to go into a research environment, um, you need more than that. So the, the first goal was to upskill um, because I was going into a, a population-based medicine approach, um, the natural upskilling was epidemiology. So um, I uh, went and did a master's in veterinary epidemiology at the Royal Veterinary College and London School of Hygiene. Um, and this, I would say, is an essential prerequisite for anyone who wants to get into the epidemiology world. You need to develop the core skills in study design and analysis, interpretation, clinical writing. Um, and that then gives you a foundation that you can go forward in whichever direction you wish, whether it's breed health or infectious disease or or whatever. And then did you do that um, like part time initially or did you go straight into that and, and, and um, commit to that 100%? Um, basically 100%. And even with that, I underestimated how tough it would be. Um, so essentially on a Saturday morning at 12 o'clock, um, I just walked out the door of my practice and never went back. That was the end of it. Um, the uh, My view is that if you're going to do something, um, you should commit wholeheartedly to it. Um, so this was a, a full-time um, didactic, so a taught MSc uh, for one year. Um, there are options to do this as distance learning and there are options to do it split over um, a number of years. Those might suit some people better, given their you know, um, lifestyle and um, ages of their children, family commitments, locations, etc. So um, you have to choose. But for me, it was fully committing for a year, I felt was the better way. Um, I'm also slightly conscious, even though I see it as a positive, being an older 
entrant into academia. I see that as a huge positive. Um, I'm also quite conscious of the, the TikTok of time and, um, you know, needing to push things along a little bit um, because as I turn around and look over my shoulder, there's a, a young lad with a cape and a sigh waiting for it to end my days. So time is important. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and then so after that, did you, did you move on to a, a PhD or did that open your eyes about the, the possibilities? And I suppose, I suppose with that, your your primary drive was, was still in the veterinary field because I imagine doing that Masters of Epidemiology, like the, I, I imagine that the, the data that exists in people is, is maybe a bit more um, alluring or, or, a, or a bigger bigger hook but you you stayed that you wanted to focus still on the on the um on the animals that we treat yeah yeah london school of hygiene is um a huge internationally known center for um epidemiological and infectious disease research so each year they have about 800 850 master students um entering the veterinary epidemiology was one part of that we had 15 students so it really is a tiny segment exactly as you describe of a huge international um body of work that goes on in humans um however um the the the, the key goal for me was to fill this gap in veterinary population-based information so um, and specifically in relation to companion animals um, even within the veterinary epidemiology which in the big scheme of things is is quite small um, the vast majority of work relates to large animal species um, so and often relating to common disorders um, like tb or brucellosis or avian influenza mainly because that's where the funding is funding funding drives research we would like to think research is is driven because of you know the desire or the need for the research it, it, it largely is driven by funding um and large animal topics are seen as as a public good so they're funded by um uh, the government and by research councils whereas companion animals are often seen as a private good therefore they need to be funded by the owners of these animals and that generally comes through as charity funding so dogs trust or kennel club and um, charitable trust or, or spca funding um so so really within the epidemiology thing i was very keen to stick within companion animal epidemiology um i was lucky enough that my um master's project was with um dave professor dave broadbelt and professor david church at the royal veterinary college um and then from there uh, that led on to the PhD, which ultimately has developed the Vet Compass program. And um, do, do you think? Do, do you believe in? Well, not serendipity, but probably that's that that's the, the wrong part of it. But it, but that your interest in answering these questions sort of coincided with the time where where some of this data has, is starting to appear or, or be collected, as it as it were, or be encoded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there there, there always is um, a degree of serendipity. Um, however, I, I've kind of always had the feel. This is, goes back to the thing: jump in the net will appear. I've always had the feeling that. Um, uh, doors, you know, um, people talk about doors opening, but there is a step before that where you have to be aware that you're looking for a door. And, and we're surrounded by opportunities all the time. Every day there are hundreds of opportunities and it's just we don't see them as opportunities because we're not looking for them. So um, I think there is a degree of um, luck involved, but to a large extent you can create that luck um uh, we were you know so in other words the outcome that we have 
depended upon the, the data collection, et cetera, that was available at, at that time, which was 2010. However, if I had done this 10 years earlier, we would have created a different outcome because there would have been opportunities then, maybe based on paper records, um, that we could have harnessed. It's just nobody did. Um, so I think we can all create a future. It's just that future will differ, but we can all create a better future if we're open and we work hard enough. And, and what was your, your PhD on, Dan? Um, this, even that is a learning story in itself. Um, following on from Pedigree Dogs Exposed, there was um, three large uh, public reports about the state of health of uh, pedigree dogs and and by and large these all concluded that there were huge issues here um, but further to that all three of those reports concluded that the main limiting factor to progress was evidence um, in other words uh, we didn't know what were the common disorders within these dogs and and to be honest we didn't even know from an evidence point of view if pedigree dogs were sicker this was it was really only kind of anecdote and belief um, even that in itself blew my mind you know how can you not even know, you know, what are the most common disorders or if they do differ? So um, I was lucky there was a um, PhD uh, funding available from RSPCA um, to explore a question about acquired and inherited diseases um, in dogs and cats. And part of that would be to develop a um, data source. But the PhD was about exploring the question. Um, so uh, with David Church and David Broadbelt, I took on that uh, PhD um, and uh, obviously aimed to answer the question. But my main motivator was to create the data resource. Um, and, th and that ultimately was VetCompass. Further to that, my main motivation was to create it as a legacy data resource. The vast majority of PhDs are one-off pieces of work in time. So somebody works extremely hard for three or four years to develop a data set, a large Excel maybe, or an access database on their research question. They answer their research question, they publish their papers, publish their thesis, and then go on their merry way with their careers. Um, that, that was never my intention. My intention was to develop a legacy project that would extend, well, ultimately forever, um, way beyond the PhD. So ultimately, I suppose in one sense, that's a slight abuse of a PhD because um, you're using it for a, a greater goal. But actually, I, I see it as uh, the correct use of PhDs and maybe the ones that just have a limited view are the ones that really are misusing or abusing or underusing the PhD opportunities. Well, it's um, it's pretty pretty impressive. So, so you so when you uh, um, so technology is obviously quite a big part of of what you're looking at, and has has that had you had to upskill in that, and has that changed um, with with the in the last sort of ten years? <laughs> so in my so my practice. Um, uh, use paper records <clears throat> up until um, a year before um, I decided to jump. Then we computerized. And when we computerized, my nurses used to say that I just typed with my elbows. Um, I was completely um, illiterate um, from a technology point of view, to a large degree still am. Um, and that's fine. Yeah, the upskilling uh, there was huge along with everything else. Um, on Monday afternoons at the London School of Hygiene for the first term, they ran uh, remedial clinics for the um, kind of special needs students like me who um, needed to learn Excel and Word and real basic um, computer skills. Um, and rather than seeing that as a, a disadvantage, 
um, I saw that as a huge advantage, which meant that uh, I was actually learning properly and learning good habits rather than maybe relying on um, things that I had learned by myself 10 or 15 years earlier that maybe weren't as good as they could be. Um, I think um, everything in life is about perspective and uh, we can choose anything to be a disadvantage, but actually every disadvantage has an advantage. It's just our choice which way we look at things. Um, so yeah, so the, the answer is yeah, huge upskilling there. Um, you know, and I still find it odd now when I'm teaching Excel skills or other skills to um, students, you know, and you, you kind of just think, wow, this is wonderful. This is the journey we can all go on um, to become, you know, the, the really bad student in the class to actually become the teacher. Um, within VetCompass, VetCompass is obviously uh, hugely driven by a big data approach. So we're now developing um, processes like natural language um, processes where we're automatically reading huge volumes of clinical text. So, um, you know, the levels of IT involvement in the project are huge. And um, and so when you sort of finished your, your PhD, did you, so was it a natural progression of con continue? So you're talking about creating a legacy, but did you want to use that yourself and push that forward? Or were there sort of more questions that you wanted to um, to look at? So, so, um, so it, it was kind of a, a continuous process. So most PhDs, and, and I can see exactly why people do it. So most PhD students do their PhDs, right? And that, that kind of sounds like a very obvious statement, but actually I think it's something we do need to think about. So a PhD student has a PhD question. They set about collecting the data. They set about answering the questions within it. They set about writing the thesis and they set about getting a PhD. And that on the face of it is completely logical. But actually, from my point of view, is completely nuts, illogical. Um, because the PhD is about growing as a person and doing far more than just your PhD uh, question. So even within my PhD, even in the first year of my PhD, I'd started to supervise other master's students. And by the end of my PhD, I'd probably supervised 20 students um, on projects. So that the whole Vet Compass thing was being stretched way beyond the PhD question already. Um, you know, and I was running projects on different species, on reptiles, on on rabbits that were never part of the original PhD question. So So actually the whole legacy concept had already started as we were growing the research team um, the the issues at that point then were how do we continue to grow and expand it and um, i was lucky enough to be awarded postdoctoral funding for three years from dogs trust um, to answer a, a follow-on clinical question about how we prioritize disorders within dogs so in other words how do we decide which disorders are the most important um, you know is it bad teeth? Is that more important than obesity, more important than otitis externa? In other words, this sort of information we need, because how can we decide in which direction we should be breeding our dogs? Is it towards better teeth or lower ear disease? And how do we decide for um, research funders, which topics to fund? Um, what are the most important topics to fund? Um, so, so, um, the funding is really important that we had the dogs trust funding and then subsequently uh, kennel club charitable trust funding um, so this has enabled vet compass to keep running but all the time with these outreach projects expanding the the remit and, and with the um 
with that sort of funding, uh, Dan, is, is that is that a continual um, uh, issue or continue worry? Is it something that um, that you need to sort of think about or or work about? I suppose that, you know. I suppose, did, did you did you envisage that being something that was quite significant? Like worried about the where to find the money to do this this research. So again, um, again, it's a really good question. It's actually a deeper question than you might even have thought when you asked it. Right. So um, in the research world, generally broadly, um, acquiring funding is a key issue, right? And and that's what a lot of researchers spend a lot of time doing is writing grants and trying to acquire funding. Um, I, I, again, this is a contrarian approach, but I, I see that as a huge problem, um, as in research is driven by funding. So it is the funders who drive the direction of research. And um, I, I fundamentally disagree with that. Uh, I think a, a lot of funders probably aren't in the best place to know what is the best research. So so I would be a very strong advocate of <coughs> um, a theory called agnotology. Agnotology is the study of what we don't know. An agnostic is uh, somebody who doesn't know or doesn't believe something. And um, I would see that there are huge areas of knowledge that have yet to be learned and that's often because funding is driving research in other directions so um when it came to that compass the issue was less about um getting funding but the issue was more about getting the funding for the research questions and direction that i felt we needed to go in it, it, it would be simple to get funding. Vet Compass is huge. We have data on over 16 million animals in the UK. Um, data over the past 10 years, you know, it is one of the largest data sets anywhere in the world. It is simple to get funding. It's just that funding might not be for the questions that I want to answer. And the questions I want to answer are the ones that primary care practitioners need answered that owners want primary care practitioners to have answers for um, and that deal with important topics, common disorders, common management protocols, and that give advice to improve clinical activities by primary care practitioners. Um, so gaining funding um, for topics that are of interest to um, big pharma or of interest to other um, beings for their own purposes is not something I'm interested in. So the answer to your question is it's not so much about getting the funding; it was getting the right funding. So, you, and that's um, that's a, a very good point about the about you know what what direction do you want to take take this um, research in, and what questions do you want do you want answered, and also the importance of that. But do you, do you think that we we actually know the questions that we want answered, or, or do you think you the when you thought about this? 10 years ago do you actually have you moved on from the questions that you want do you want answered if that makes sense or have you refined it a bit better totally totally and everything i always look back uh, with interest not with chagrin or regret um but always with interest at the um i'm using inverted commas the errors i've made in other words um if we take a presentist approach, we view the world from our present state of knowledge, the things we did in the past were, were often wrong. When we view them from the perspective that was available at that time, the decisions were correct, given the information we had at that time. Um, so, my, so, for example, my PhD was acquired and inherited disorders of dogs and cats. Um, so in other words, dogs and cats have some disorders that are acquired 
um, that happen during life and some that are inherited that are determined by their genetics, their DNA. And, and this that was the prevailing understanding at the time. And in fact, for many people, it still is the prevailing understanding. Um, even that took me about six months into the PhD to realize it was wrong and that the, there are no disorders that are solely acquired and there are no disorders that are solely inherited. Every disorder is both. It's just a matter of which is predominant. Um, I, I will still remember when um, I, I, I did my first major paper from the PhD, which was the prevalence of the most common disorders in dogs and cats. Yep. And this identified periodontal disease, otitis externa, anal sac disease, obesity, um, osteoarthritis as, as the most common disorders in dogs and cats. And it, it just blew my mind. That paper was published in 2014. That was the first time that anyone... Um, had really recorded what were the most common disorders. The focus up until then had been on rare disorders and rare disorders within specific breeds. So, so I'm constantly refining these questions and the questions keep on changing. And every time we do a study, as you start to dig into that study, you realize much of what you understood and believed to be true before you started just is not as true as you thought it was. Um, so life is a is a constant learning journey. That that's actually the fun. Um, it, the fun is of research is all about um, uh, learning that you're wrong. And the day, and I would say this to the students, the day that the results come out the way I think they are going to come out, and the hypotheses are all supported, is the day that I can clap my hands together and say my work here is done. Um, and I I don't believe that day will ever come. To be honest. Um, I like being wrong. That's the fun bit. When you get it right, you've learned nothing because, well, you were right all along. You know, it's the stuff you get wrong. That's the good stuff. And that's why I say I look back at the mistakes and I see them as as the biggest successes. Um, in other words, spotting the mistake and uh, learning from it. And and you, you've, um, in your, um, I, sp- I suppose, like relatively um, short short career in in research you, you've been quite a um a, a powerhouse i don't know the appropriate terminology of a, of a publishing mach- machine yourself dan and and um asking a, a a huge sort of variety of questions and do you do you find that um an an easy thing or or a strength that that you have to be able to have such diversity in the questions you're answering or, or do you look obviously with a with a wealth of information that you have at your disposal, can it be a bit bit blinding about what what actual path to to choose, or or, or do you in your in your mind's eye have a, a a sort of plan of the areas and the things you want to you you want to ask or think that we that we should ask in the in the profession? Yeah, very good question actually, because again we're down to the direction we take. So. Um, so since 2012, um, yeah, we've published a lot of papers. Um, it's very kind of you to say a powerhouse. Uh, I'm not sure what the term is or even if that's correct, but um, yeah, we've published quite a lot. So um, this week we have another paper coming out um, on heat stroke. I think that will be the 95th paper since 2012 for me. Um, so, you know, that is, yeah, um, a, a pretty good output. Um, the, the topics that um, we pick are uh, tend to be common veterinary 
um, disorders. Um, and because of having a long history in primary care practice, that means that actually I'm quite comfortable with all of these topics. Um, so we had a paper out three weeks ago on anal sac disease. Um, you know, there's not a day in primary care practice that doesn't pass without, you know, the joy of squeezing anal. Uh, we have a paper coming out in two weeks on obesity in dogs. Again, you know, this is bread and butter stuff for anyone in practice. Um, but yet it's revealing information that's never been published before. Um, you know, just so much research tends to go on rare topics um, rather than commoner garden topics, um, especially topics that do not get referred. Much of the research is based at universities, quite rightly. Um, but disorders that don't get referred then can't really be researched if we're reliant on university referral care research. Um, so they, so um, do I feel uncomfortable? No, the topics are all comfortable. Every paper that I do, um, obviously it focuses on epidemiology and clinical management and outcomes and uh, diagnostics, um, but every paper has a um, clinical expert or clinical specialist involved. Um, so, so they're very strongly epidemiology, they're very strongly based on the first opinion world, but we have an expert on the team um, so that we have the latest cutting edge expert views included as well. And interestingly, as a side point, uh, one of my learnings um, is that research needs to be collaborative. And there's a move towards this, but um, there is still um, an ethos by a lot of researchers um, that it needs to be their research. I don't see it like that. I see it that it needs to be our research. It's, it's the data are shared by the profession um, and the results should be given back to the profession. The topics should be the ones that are relevant for the profession and uh, the research should be done by teams so that you're gaining from the different knowledge bases that each of the different team members brings. Do you think, Dan, that, that your ethos or attitude to that has, has come because you're you're coming at this with a with a mature like veterinary hat on if you, if you like that you've you've done time in practice and you actually want to answer these and thinking about the the best way to do that and although um you, you are a, a powerhouse or a publishing machine or, or whatever I said before they actually you you know you have that ethos that you want to bring the profession in that makes it um easier for you to, to look at it this way? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there's there was um, this really nice book published two years ago, three years ago called Range. And um, it was exploring in various different fields, whether it's um, sport or business um, and also in research where um, persons who have a very broad level of experience actually succeed much um, greater uh, than people with a very narrow but deep um, level of experience. So I think there is a tendency in many professions and the veterinary profession is one for um, uh, persons to maybe graduate, um, then do an internship or residency and then um, specialize and become the world's leading expert in, you know, cardiology or oncology or whatever. And, and that's great. Um, but it does mean that then that's their world. Whereas somebody who has spent time in the primary care world actually knows a large amount about the real world on a whole range of topics, you know, whether it's teeth or skins or joints or um, behavior or human behavior or practice management. So um, I think coming from a um, long uh, set of years in the first opinion world just gave me that range where I can dabble in 
pretty well most topics. Um, and then I have the expert to give me the depth in those papers. Um, and I see that as a huge benefit. Um, and, and, you know, if there are listeners out there who are thinking, oh, you know, I'm a little bit long in the tooth, I've been in practice 10 or 20 years, I, I just, I'm the wrong person, I needed to have done that um, next step up when I was two or three years out. Um, I disagree. Uh, I, I think experienced practitioners have a huge amount to offer. Um, you know, and given a choice, if I had two candidates for a, a PhD, one was 25 and one was 45, um, you know, the, the experience of the 45-year-old, um, all, all other things being equal, would be a huge advantage rather than being a disadvantage. Um, people often apologize for being old. Um, you know, I think they should be popping the champagne cork and celebrating uh, the wisdom they gained from uh, becoming old. It's, it's one of those things, isn't it? Is whether you're relevant to the people that you're trying to um, trying to teach, and I suppose this is the um, where, where people look up to you and, and what they can see themselves doing. And I think that in the veterinary field, um, like in the veterinary education, I think that's when you know, students do when you're out sort of 15 years, they can't foresee themselves in your shoes. So it doesn't matter whether you're in primary care or referral level that that they probably defer to someone else to um to to look to 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 progress their sort of their career as it as it were um so maybe, maybe that's we, we need to be able to have a bit more foresight and see that what we what we could potentially um achieve and that, that's a very um good is that david epstein isn't it epstein or epstein um range um uh, I, I read that this year as, as well. The so, so maybe in, in broad circumstance, Dan, could I just say so? What what are the if if there are what are the limitations with with looking at big data in in um, in the veterinary field? So 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 what what would be the so would there be studies that you would actually think well maybe big data isn't suited to this that we need to look at a small cohort or you know a hundred animals rather than um, rather than ten thousand, or do you, or do you not see it that way? Um, no, no. I, I think <clears throat> there's so. First of all, there's a concept called triangulation. That um, it's where if you want to answer a question, the best way is to look at it from lots of three the triangle, um, but often many more perspectives. And if you get the same answer from the different perspectives, then you can feel more confident about your answer. So. Um, you know, I, I would see many of our research questions, we will um, approach them from a first opinion, big data point of view, but there is also value from, um, you know, survey uh, or um, Ken Club pedigree records or referral or insurance data. So in other words, um, asking the same question of different data sets often gives you big advantages. Um, the, the studies, uh, referral studies with smaller cases of animals, I think, are really useful if we're delving into the specific pathology, um, uh, and and there are huge strengths there from that. So it's not that there is an inherent problem with um, uh, small studies that are going very deep. It's just they're answering a different question. The questions I'm interested in answering are questions about what is happening. So in other words. What are the current levels of disease? What are the current risk factors? What are the current types of management, methods of diagnostics, outcomes? They're not aiming to say that what is currently happening is the best. 
or less than the best. It's just answering what is happening. Um, uh, and we're also trying to produce information that is generalizable. So in other words, the sort of animals that are within the VetCompass data set, um, you know, if they're the same sort of animals that you're treating, then the results we uh, generate should reflect the results you would achieve because the animals are similar. Whereas with a lot of the referral studies, the animals I would treat in primary care practice just bear no relation whatsoever to the sort of animals that are treated in a referral center. You know, I, I, back in the day in primary care practice, I would read these studies of mast cell tumors from, you know, published in journals, obviously based on referral work, excellent uh, clinical care, excellent outcomes, all telling me about um, excising them at wide margins and multiple fascial planes underneath and following up with um, radiotherapy, et cetera, et cetera. And it just bear, bore no relationship to my experience of mast cell tumors in primary care practice, many of which were just pimples that you cut out and that was the end of it. Um, and essentially it was the difference between the mast cell tumor cases that were referred versus the ones that people just dealt with in practice that weren't referred. Um, it's all about generalizability. Um, but no, I, I would see strengths from all the different um, types of data. And within Vet Compass now, we're expanding the, pushing the envelope a little bit, and uh, we've got quite a large uh, component within it of referral um, data as well. And we are now running quite a lot of referral studies using the Vet Compass technology, the ability to search through large volumes of cases and answer lots of questions using the whole Vet Compass platform. So, um, you know, it's not that there, there is just one data source. There are many data sources and it depends what the question is we're trying to answer. There are also many disorders that primary care data are, is kind of unsuitable to answer. Um, so disorders that primary care vets are um, less confident at diagnosing or where a high proportion of the true cases may be missed probably are not the ideal ones. So um, topics like autoimmune disease, um, you know, those sort of topics may not be the most appropriate ones for first opinion, unless we're trying to identify what is diagnosed rather than what's truly there. Um, so it, it's it horses for courses. And then, and then you so you touched on a, a really, I thought a great point about like when you're reading these papers and they they might be looking at something that you're that you're um, interested in or have a case in front of you, but you know, is it is it written um, in a similar sort of patient population that you that you have? And, and what's your your thoughts about the relevance of the information that you're publishing in Vet Compass to say? people in um, Australasia or Canada or Europe or Africa? Like, do you, do you think that it, it helps or do we need to look at this globally or nationally or even, even more regionally? Do we, do we need to subdivide it into, uh, I don't know, Scotland and Ireland and Wales? I, you know, do we, do we need to divide it even, even further or even more regionally than that? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I think it's, again, we're back to the horses for courses. So um, when we're comparing breed as a risk factor, so we're doing comparisons, um, the results probably are quite transferable. Um, a lot of those breed factors, some of them are, are intrinsically genetic, but a lot of them are related to conformation. So a Labrador looks pretty much the same in the UK as it does in Australia and America. Its genetics might be different, but the conformation is pretty much the same. So disorders associated with conformation are likely to be similar. Um, where the um, 
data you would be a little bit more circumspect about generalizing is on the absolute results because we're often reporting the prevalence of diagnosis what diagnostic tests are used what drugs are used what are the outcomes um those um results relate to current uk veterinary primary care activity and that is likely to be very different um between continents, um, even within the UK, it's likely to be quite different. Um, so those results um, are going to be less generalizable. There's a couple of ways around that. One is to um, have vet compass projects in each of those areas. And we've already gone quite a long way towards that. So um, Australia has had vet compass Australia running for the past three, four years um, as a collaborative between all the veterinary schools in Australia. And there are already papers starting to come out from that. Um, and those papers allow us to compare results between Australia and the UK. Um, so we can even answer the, the question you just asked based on data rather than our opinion. Um, there's a, a number of um, groups in the US that are planning to um, set up a vet compass type project. Um, it's a lot more challenging there, oddly, because um, the nature of how the US is set up means that it's harder to get large collaborative projects going. Um, there is a um, nascent project at NASI in New Zealand as well. Um, and there are plans in a number of other countries, Sweden, Denmark, Spain, Germany. Um, so, that, so that's one approach. The other approach is to specifically report um, broken down by area. And we've done that within some of the Vet Compass projects where um, we've uh, taken a geographic approach and compared between areas. And uh, often there are quite um, striking differences. Um, and those in themselves are um, quite useful and often generate really good questions um, that help us to understand better what's happening. So very good question. And, and um, so, so maybe we should, we should um, I don't know if I can talk to you for, for, for hours, which is probably a good thing. Um, the, um, uh, what, what are you currently sort of doing at the, at the moment? I imagine there's um, uh, your, your fingers in a number of, of pies, but what, what is the sort of current research that you're, you're looking at? So there's so there's there's a series of different kind of large fields that we're looking at at the moment. So uh, one large field is antimicrobial usage, huge issue in um, human and animal health antimicrobial resistance. So we have a series of projects going on companion animal antimicrobial usage on equine antimicrobial usage um, because we've extended the, the Vet Compass concept and we have Vet Compass equine. Uh, and we also have a PhD student doing um, antimicrobial usage in cattle. So using Vet Compass for cattle. Um, so that's one large body of work. Um, there is a very large body of work exploring uh, conformation-related disorders in dogs um, and to a lesser extent cats, but um, dogs because more of them are of a recognized breed and, and there is more diversity among those breeds. Dogs are ideal for this. So a large number of studies looking at um, disorders related to um, different conformational phenotypes. Um, Specifically, we put a lot of focus on brachycephaly and have done for the past five years um, because there is a huge brachycephalic crisis uh, going on in the UK and worldwide and uh, clinical evidence on uh, which breeds and um, the levels of disease is really important to support progress in that area. Um, uh, another area we're moving into is, is a new concept called causal inference. Um, so this is a brand new concept. Um, to date, virtually all epidemiology reports associations. 
So we can report that some activity, so whether it is um, being of a certain breed or being neutered or aging um, or a prior exposure to X drug or X event is associated with a certain outcome. Um, but the next step up is to say whether that association is causal. So in other words, does one cause another or is it just on some causal pathway? Um, so we have a PhD uh, starting in October that will um, explore this area. It's a whole new area of research and it's quite topical in human uh, research as well at the moment. Um, and, and, and as well as that, we have a whole series of other um, conceptual projects that are running as well. Quite a lot of um, uh, longevity studies. Um, so looking at uh, how long dogs live, why do they die, and um, what breeds are associated with different longevity. And that's now been extended to cats as well. Um, so quite a lot of research and also a big body of research on common disorders. What are the most frequent disorders um, and how do we um, compare them in terms of their importance to animals at a population level? It's not just about how common they are. It's also um, the duration, how long they last for an animal and the severity. Um, so we may have anal sac disorder and people may say, well, that's not a big deal, but actually it's really common. And um, maybe when the animals have it, it is extremely uncomfortable, which is why the dogs scoot. And it often recurs again and again and again for the whole of their life. Um, so actually, maybe we need to rethink and, and realize actually anal sac disorder is a huge issue for dogs. Um, so, yeah, so many different uh, approaches and actually several others as well. And and so with these, and what are your, what are you looking at in the in the future, or what, or what questions do you think you'd like to to, to answer? Um, so they so there's there's research questions, which often is where science starts, and it's probably where I've started as well. But actually, um, in the future, where I would like to go is um, supporting and directing actually policy more so than answering questions. So answering questions is really important, but it's often the first step. And in many cases, that's where research ends. We have a question, we answer a question, job done, move on, right? And and, and that's fine to a degree, but it hasn't necessarily changed the world in, in meaningful ways. Um, so the, the, the next steps um, with VetCompass are to have the data become more engaged in policy change. Um, and I'm kind of realizing over time, this is where um, you'd said, do you look back and see your mistakes? And yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of realizing one of the big um, penny drop moments is that the majority of disorders of dogs and issues of dogs and cats um, are not dog problems. They're human problems. You know, we choose to design the breeds the way we choose to design them. We choose to buy the breeds and make certain breeds popular and others not popular. We choose to feed, we choose to neuter, we choose to keep, um, we choose to euthanize. Um, these are all human decisions, even though we might say they're dog issues. Um, so one of the growing areas of that compass is dissemination and sharing the information we have with the real power brokers of animal welfare. And that's the owners. It's not actually the scientists. It's not actually the breeders. It's not necessarily the kennel clubs. Um, it's not even government um, because a lot of the legislation that's enacted is just ignored. It's not enforced. It's actually owners. 
and owners are the real power brokers. They're the ones who make the real decisions. So we spend um, a lot of time developing infographs, in other words, translating our research into public messages. So um, doing infographs or interviews with newspapers or press releases or various different um, blogs, online things, um, you know, me various media activities. Um, and, and I think that that really is the future. And I think it's an area that research, certainly veterinary research, has been very, very poor at over the past decades. Um, excellent at generating the research, but actually very poor at sharing it with the people who really need to know it, who are the owners, um, as opposed to sharing it at veterinary conferences with other vets, um, which is important, but actually is just a subset of the overall impact that we could achieve. And so, Dan, do you, do you think you're making steps into this sort of policy change? Are you are you happy the way things are going, or do you think we're just sort of scratching on the surface of it and we need to um, you know, push more? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. The, the, the policy... Um, if we assume that there is a right answer for policy change, then I would say we could say we're only scratching at the surface. Um, however, I'm not sure there is a right answer. There is the answer that we will choose. So so at the moment within, um, let's just look at the dog confirmation world. At the moment within the dog confirmation world, there is a lot of activity going on. Um, the UK has a, a national group called the UK Brachycephalic Working Group that I chair. And that includes the kennel club, breed clubs, veterinary organizations, major charities, government. Um, and, and that is um, progressing in a very logical, sensible, collaborative way um, to try and reshape the ownership of brachycephalic breeds and hopefully reshape the breeds themselves over time. So that is policy being developed, but very specifically being developed based on evidence. And a lot of that evidence is Vecumbus evidence just because it relates to the general population. Um, there is now a an international um, group, the International Collaborative on Extreme Confirmation in Dogs that I'm a found a member of and part of and again that's taking the same approach where um, we're taking key groups from countries all over the world and trying to develop an international strategy because even if we decide to change or um, refine the confirmation of certain breeds in the UK um, actually that's not sufficient because these animals exist all over the world and we need a, a worldwide approach to changing confirmation and changing popularity um, and even within the Brachycephalic Working Group, we have um, developed a strapline, which is stop and think before buying a flat-faced dog. And that strapline is signed off by everyone within the Brachycephalic Working Group. And we are now encouraging everyone in the world to use that strapline. Very simple strapline. And it's simply saying to the general public, um, it's not telling people what to do. It's actually just saying, just stop, take a moment before you buy that French bulldog or bulldog and think about it. Is this the right breed for you? More importantly, is it the right breed for dogs? In other words, to add another French bulldog or bulldog or pug to the, to the world dog population, instead of adding a different breed that we would then forego. So, um, so it, it, is it part of policy? Yes, evidence is a huge part of policy. Um, similarly, antimicrobial usage. The UK has a, a group called uh, Ruma, companion animal, and um, that compass evidence is, is a key part of that, along with other evidence sources. Um, so, the, so, so evidence can be used within policy and can be used to help shape policy. 
Um, but again, as with the disorders of dogs, uh, policy isn't driven by evidence, it's driven by humans. And um, it's just important that all of us are a part of the decision making, you know, and I would see everyone who's contributing data to Vet Compass as ultimately being part of it. So every um, vet, every nurse, every veterinary professional in any of the practices, 30% of UK practices are part of Vet Compass, you know, you are all contributing to this movement. And then do, do you find so that, that element of, of how to disseminate this information um, a, a harder thing to, to achieve I mean, and, and also with the, the skill set that you've had to learn? Or do you think actually you almost need to engage a, a marketing company for the purposes of disseminating this, this information? Um, <laughs> it would be lovely to have the funds for a marketing company. Actually, I'm not even sure that would be... Um, necessarily good um, because uh, you're then abdicating some of the responsibility to marketeers who may well go in a different direction so um, but either way we haven't got the funds for that so um, yeah it tends to be uh, what we're developing within the vet compass team um, is it a skill we're learning yes uh, when we look back even the infographs we've gone through various different iterations and these keep on changing all the time in the nature of the color and the information and the messages we have within them. Um, the latest innovation we're having, which we're just working on for the first time now, is um, having general owner-based health sheets um, to go with uh, every new paper that we release. So as well as an infograph that describes what's in the paper, there'll be a parallel um, infograph, which will just give owner-based health information, partly from the paper, but partly from uh, the knowledge base of the experts. So um, the process is constantly evolving. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll just go to sleep and wake up and you think, ah, there's a nice idea. Let's do that. Um, and again, that's the beauty of Vet Compass is that um, we tend to make decisions and then I'll chat them over with Dave Broadbelt, Noel Kennedy and David Church. And, you know, that afternoon we're doing them. Um, it's extremely flexible approach. Um but it's it is it's a constant learning process, and we're constantly getting feedback from the public, from media groups, from our other partners, collaborators, and then we just keep on changing and evolving. Um, you know that's the nature of um, being successful in the world is to constantly evolve and grow, and hopefully we're evolving in a positive direction. I think I think, I think definitely. And what do you um, so so it's like a change of tack, Dan? But what what would you? What would you be doing if you if you weren't doing what you're doing now? Oddly, oddly, um, not even veterinary, I suspect. Uh, my ultimate original goal had been to be a primary school teacher. Um, and I have a feeling that um, if I wasn't doing veterinary, that's what I would be doing, teaching small children in a primary school, um, probably in Ireland. Um, you know, the, the, uh, obviously, I graduated from Dublin and originally worked as a house surgeon in Ireland, but... Um, uh, uh, the UK just has a much more evolved small animal companion animal practice uh, world so this was a logical place to be um, but my original goal had always been and my pleasure and joy comes from teaching um, so I think I would revert back to being a primary school teacher if I wasn't doing this um, very good that said, um, you know much of the role that I'm doing now is still teaching and I have to say that's yeah. the, the aspect that gives me huge joy mm. And and what would you what advice would you give either a a, um, a, a young vet or or scientist um, to to have a, a career in research or even an, an older vet and an older scientist? 
Um, well, within the RVC, um, every staff member has tutees, and, and we. This is the question you've asked. There is exactly the question we will chat over with our tutees. Um, the 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 basic advice I would give to every young vet is to go out and be a vet, to learn the craft of your trade, and. Um, Oddly, that is not learned in a specialist referral centre. That can come later, and it's really important that we have specialists, and they are vital. Um, but every young vet should go out and learn the craft of their trade, be in small animal practice for five years, become extremely competent at small animal practice, get to the point when you realise small animal practice is not about the animals. We think it is. It's not. It's about the owners. And um, the successful small animal vets are the ones who can communicate, who are honest, um, uh, who can smile and cry with their clients and um, who get engaged with their animals. Um, and that would be the, the advice I would give. And then once you have learned the craft of your trade, then decide what direction you can go in. The next thing is to accept that um, directions are only temporary. We can choose to change them at any point in time, and you can choose to do a complete turnaround, go back, and then go down a different avenue. You know, we're not trapped at any point until we accept that we're trapped. Um, learned helplessness, we can choose to accept and say, well, you know, I'm stuck. Um, or we can choose just to change jump in the net will appear. And you, you spent um, the last, uh, what did it say, so 12 years at the, at the RVC. So, so why the RVC? Was that just the, because the opportunity for the, um, for the masters and then, and then the PhD or, or um, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure other universities might've lured, lured you away. Yeah, it's, it's, this is serendipity to a degree as well. Uh, part of it is location. My veterinary practice was in Petswood, Kent, um, just south of London. So RVC was, um, geographically, the logical um, veterinary college. Um, the second reason was that once you decide to do veterinary epidemiology, there are epidemiology courses at a number of universities, and there are human epidemiology ones at um, you know non-veterinary um, sites as well. But the um, veterinary epidemiology MSc at the RVC is world renowned. Um, so it was geography. It was um, actually it was the best one uh, in my mind. Um, so part of this is serendipity and part of it is is just reputation um, and then staying on at the Royal Veterinary College I know in some senses these kind of um, international rating score things are slightly trivial but they are important you know and the RVC has just returned to being the number one veterinary school in the world you know so it would be very hard to actively choose to be somewhere else when there was an opportunity to be at the RVC you know so um, it just it's it, it was a logical place to start and it's a logical um, place to remain. Um, it's a very large school and uh, the breadth of collaborators at the school and the breadth of collaborators that are happy to work with you because you are from the RVC is huge. So there are just so many advantages. Um, but equally, as I said before, where I at any other university or other institute, you would just create equal and possibly even better opportunities. Um, so, you know, we can be successful wherever we are. It's, it's just if we choose to, to work hard enough to achieve that. And it's um, how we choose to define success. Which, which is a, uh, a question in itself. So I think um, that sort of, well, maybe we should wrap it up there dan but uh thank you so much it's um it, it's always 
interesting and insightful and uh, I think inspirational to you uh, to listen to to people's sort of stories about how they um, have got to where they've gotten and the questions that they're trying to answer and also um, I suppose makes you understand you know, some some of what you're what you're trying to um, what you're trying to achieve and do and um, and to, the the very best of of luck. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure, Dominic. Actually, um, I'd often find that chatting things through is probably you in the guise of a therapist, um, chatting things through with somebody who asks insightful questions actually helps you to understand what it is you thought you believed even better because you're now having to put things into words. So, um, yeah, chatting is good. Thank you. Excellent. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Um, and again, thanks for your time today, uh, today Dan. Um, and thank you for listening. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device. And that way you don't have to worry about missing a podcast. So you leave us a review, five-star review, please, on Apple Podcasts or Acast, wherever you get your podcast. That would be great. And tell your friends, vet friends, any, any others. I'm sure Dan would be happy for for uh, um, for the, the the next veterinary epidemiologist to to listen to this and be inspired and um, and uh, take um, on or take off from where, where he's got to um so we'll play some show notes on the obviously pages so just type in obviously clinical podcast sorry research podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree any comments or suggestions please get in touch you can either email dbarfield or tweet at tom barfield until next time bye-bye